श्री गुरु वैष्णव गुरु परंपरा की जाए और भक्त वृंद की जाए और मॉर्निंग एवरीवन सो एनी क्वेश्चंस दिस मॉर्निंग यस karma but the thing that he's struggling with he says this has always been a hard thing for him is that if we always if we come to this material world and we start off as a human being and then we you know according to our desires in the human form we degrade ourselves into lower species he said that there's the lower species there's so many more living entities than there are humans to him mathematically you know you know that it, it may be one of those kind of questions that you know it's inconceivable and but he's really struggling with that, that you know every cell of the body there's a soul and so how could that happen if it could anyway you have to understand what he's asking so he's thinking that living beings enter the material world from somewhere in the position of a brahma who's like a creator of the world and from there they become degraded and that sounds unreasonable to begin with and then to further play that out it seems even more unreasonable actually this is uh, discussed in gopal tapani in my commentary in gopal tapani uh, i don't have that here but one should copy in your room get a copy and Well, mine, and you can you can look through it while we talk, see if you can find it. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, we didn't have you as an indexer when we did that book, so it doesn't have an index. But, mm-hmm. but um, while he looks for that, we'll discuss it a little bit. Of course, his his confusion is based on perhaps a statement of Srila Prabhupada that the living entity first takes birth as Brahma. and um and of course that would brahma's position is is high position as a living entity it is said that to take the position of a brahma one has to have perfectly executed the varnashram dharma all of the regulations governing the varnashram dharma social religious system governing the different uh, psycho physiological makeup of the people which is varied of course and um according to the sacred text of india then there's some basic basic divisions and many subdivisions from there there are those who have the propensity for labor and those who have the propensity for trade and agriculture and those who have the propensity for administration and and so forth and those who have the propensity for priestly life intellectual life and and so on. and there are many as i say divisions within that and this all refers to the psychological and physical makeup of living beings under the influence of the modes of nature modes of nature means like material nature has different modalities we call it sattva rajas tamas means material things have a way of making themselves known that's intelligibility something like that we call that sattva and material things also move 
there's always movement. That is called rajas, passion. And then there's inertia in matter. We call that tamas. Or sometimes it's translated as, as ignorance. So that's in the physical realm. And then in the psychic realm, you know, we, we function both physically and psychically as embodied souls, so to speak. So this, this psychic realm is, is a kind of a subtle form of matter. And, um, and so when these modes of nature, matter is constituted of these modes, modalities, and uh, manifesting in, in subtle matter in the form of our psyche, then they appear as tendencies and desires uh, towards virtue and clarity of thought. And, and so when these modes of nature, matter is constituted of these modes, modalities, and uh, manifesting in, in subtle matter in the form of our psyche, then they appear as, as uh, tendencies and desires uh, towards virtue and clarity of thought when someone may work for material progress, material betterment, and so forth. And then uh, Thomas makes one prone just towards sense enjoyment and not with material progress and even going backwards, perhaps. So in a material situation, we're, we're influenced by these modes physically and, and psychically and, and so on. And so there's a system given in the texts, the sacred texts, how to deal with that psychophysiological makeup that we have in such a way that we can gradually come out from underneath it. And the very general sense of this is by making a connection with the Absolute through our physical and psychological uh, movements in a way that makes for harmony in the society and balance in individuals' lives and so forth. Varnashram is about getting material balanced. It's like horizontal development. So we have good firm ground to stand on when we seek to jump high and touch the sky. We should have start with two feet on the ground. So if we're not integrated psychologically and socially very well, and maybe not very well suited to pursue vertical growth, it's vertical growth is not dependent upon psychological or horizontal growth, but the practical reality is that horizontal growth does facilitate it. That's why the scriptures advise us before advising us about vertical growth, they advise us about horizontal growth. For example, you've heard the famous statement, Atato Brahma Jignasu. Now is the time to inquire about Brahman, about vertical growth. Not how to be just uh, happy in human life, but how to transcend the limits of humanity. But that statement, Atatu Brahma Jignasu, comes after a, a dissertation that precedes it. And that dissertation is prefaced by the phrase, Atato Dharma Jignasu. means now is the time to inquire about horizontal growth, about Dharma. In other words, religious life is one thing and spiritual life is another. The latter is a progression from the former. 
The religious life means to be to live a human life in consideration of of, uh, of the absolute. And if you live your human life in consideration of the absolute, in consideration of God, then the idea is that you, if you do it right, you live the best, happiest, and most prosperous, harmonious human life. A human life that will have regard for life and uh, enable us to live in the world with balance and as uh, sometimes it said, stewards of nature and, and so forth. And, and exploitation which is the norm in material life. It's here or here? Yeah, you don't want it much. Okay. Exploitation, which is the norm in material life for the simple reason that in material life we have a perceived necessity. Because we're a soul, but we're identified with matter. And this form of matter, will our body will not endure. So it has needs. In order to endure, we have to meet those needs. So we have a perceived necessity resulting from identifying with the body, which has needs. And so, when we're identified with matter in that way, and we have perceived needs, then we have to be on the take. If you need, then you have to take, right? If you're full and you don't need, then you can give. So, we're all exploiting to one extent or another, but the Varnashram system, the spirit of it is to live in the world in, in consideration of God in such a way that this exploitation is is diminished and it's harnessed and uh, and you make as peaceful of a situation as you as you can just like if you're in jail well you know then you have to follow some rules and uh, something like that they're all you know criminals but they're able to live in that environment under certain restrictions and so forth so so this is the idea and now the point being here what that a person and those rules are many the Dharma Shastra says there's so many rules governing the Varnashram. I mean, we've talked about this before, but devotees sometimes advocate, let's establish Varnashram, but most of them have no idea what a full-blown Varnashram system is. Brigu just uh, mentioned that he got a book, Brigupad, about uh, Dharma Shastra, authored by somebody, it's an ancient text and so forth. And, and uh, he just brought up the one point about Brahmacharis, a whole section about brahmacharis and how they're supposed to live and what they're supposed to eat and what kind of stick they're supposed to carry if they're this age or that age and another size stick and each one has to, so many things. I mean, that's just the beginning of it. Sanatana Goswami Prabhu wrote in Brihad Bhagavatamrita, oh, something to the effect at the very beginning of that, I'm paraphrasing, but when will I be freed? as a result of real faith in bhakti, from the burdensome adherence to all these guidelines for human society. When can I transcend the necessity for adherence to the dharma shastras and all this varnashram, all these rules? That is dependent upon shraddha in bhakti, by which we come under then the jurisdiction of bhakti rather than varnashram. So, at any rate, the idea is that it's, it's rather cumbersome, especially in human society today. But it's said that a person who follows the Varnashram religious system and all the rules perfectly for 100 lifetimes becomes qualified to take birth as a Brahma. So, point is, 
forgive me for making it in a roundabout way, but Brahma's position is, is a pretty high position, at least materially speaking. It doesn't get much better than Brahma. And so he's who takes the position as a Brahma is involved in the creation, and he's a knower of the Vedas. And Another name for Brahma is Vidhi. Vidhi means rules, so he like follow the rules really well. That's why he was so bewildered when he saw Krishna in the uh, Brahma Vimohan Leela. There was a commotion amongst the gods offering regard to Krishna because of what had occurred in relation to Aga, that big serpent that tried to swallow Krishna's friends in the hopes of following him. If I swallow his friends, then he'll definitely you know, come into my mouth also. He lied as a huge python on the Vrindavan path. And of course he was right. Krishna's a good friend, so <laughs> if they're in trouble, then he'll go to save them. But at any rate, it was, his plan wasn't that well thought out. And so Krishna expanded himself within Agasur such that he suffocated. But Agasur's Krishna, because he was inside of the body of Agasur, Agasur's soul had kind of like nowhere to go. So it went up into the sky, and then when Krishna came out, then it merged into the body of Krishna. All the gods saw this. So they were making commotion. But when Brahma came and saw Krishna, then picnicking with his friends, and Krishna was putting food in the mouth of his friends and taking it out and putting it in his mouth. And this is not a very you know sophisticated dining party. It was a real you know picnic. And um, just like there are rules for everything else in Varnashram, there are rules for dining, what hand to eat with, what way to, you know, this face and this and that, and what time to eat, what time not to eat. You know, it's, a, it's a very restrictive system, but of course it seeks to facilitate freedom from the demands of the mind and the demands of the senses, which are taking us, pulling us in different directions at the same time. The belly is hungry, so we feed it. And then it's full, it says enough, but the tongue says, take more. And the result is indigestion. And our ears take us this way, and our nose takes us that way, our eyes take us another way. So we are being drawn and pulled in so many different directions at the same time. Hard to have it peaceful. So the Varnashram system is as overbearing in terms of rules and regulations as it is. Why? For what purpose? What does that tell us? The system is so overbearing. It seeks to tell us, in a sense, that the extent to which we are distracted and dragged hither and thither by our senses and mind is considerable. Therefore, a system to harness that is so that we can move away from animality towards humanity, away from the call of the wild, it's interesting because the wild speaks to us of freedom and civilized life seems confined in many respects, comparatively. So much so that we live in the city and we want to get out sometimes in nature and just experience the wildlife. Humanity has a fascination with wildlife. And the reason for this, one of the reasons for this, is that Actually, spiritual life, 
as opposed to religious life is quite wild and entirely free. But the uh, wild life of animality and so forth, the, the animal kingdom, is only an appearance of freedom. It's attractive because it appears to be free, but actually it's, it's more controlled. They're more oppressed by their minds and senses. In fact, the mind and reasoning is hardly even functioning in many of the less complex species of life. That's why, as I said sometimes, if you have some pets, a couple of dogs, and you, you call them to eat, you, know, you, you won't find one saying, well, you first. No, you first. The wild. The wildness, the freedom that they seem to have is, is attractive at a glance, but actually they're less free than human society. The more we become human, civilized, and the, it means the more that we control our minds and our senses, and we don't just follow them whenever they, whatever they say, whenever they say, the more free we become. Why? Because we move from, to that extent, from a mere physical life to a mental and intellectual life, which is more free. Just like everyone knows, if you get a good education, you can work less and earn more, right? You know, theoretically. So there's more freedom. So as we move from mere physical life and urges to more of a mental and intellectual, it's considered metaphorically that we're going within. So the more we move away from the call of the mind and the senses, while there's an appearance of restriction, what's being restricted is that which is inhibiting us from actually being wild and free and spontaneous, and, and so forth, which is the nature of the soul, ultimately. So the Varnashram system is a real scientific kind of a system to govern human society in such a way that it becomes gradually freed from this demands of the minds and senses and then begins to inquire about the self, not just how to live happily in human society and recognition of God and so forth, but, but to have union with God directly. What a bold idea to meet God soul to soul, something like that, which requires that your soul has to come out from underneath the uh, oppression of the mind and the senses. So, as that interest starts to awaken in one who has followed this, this religious system, then his dharma jignashu, his inquiry into how to be human, how to be religious, moves to an inquiry into how to be spiritual. Atato brahma jignashu. Now is the time to inquire about vertical growth rather than horizontal growth. The two are, you know, they're not divorced as much as horizontal and vertical would be, but just to give it a perspective, if you want to build a high building, then you have to have a big, long, broad foundation. So that the two are, are not divorced from one another. They're related. One is a progression of the other. Spiritual life is a progression of religious life. Of course, there is another method by which, another means by which one can come to spiritual inquiry. What is that? Right, sadhu sangha. If, for example, we're not privy to that system, but we meet a sadhu, a saint, that person 
can change the course of our life. Sadhu Sangha, Sadhu Sangha, Sarva Shastra, Lavamatra, Sadhu Sangha, Sarva Siddhi And we can begin to inquire about vertical growth and be interested in that. And that saint, he or she, of course, will advise us good and gets a little, little horizontal growth here too, perhaps. And talk about it in such a way that we can, we can progress naturally and happily. So Vidhi, Brahma, he was uh, so expert in all such rules and regulations, rules even governing the simple act of, of eating, what to eat, when to eat, where to eat, how to eat, which hand, and, and so on. Sounds restrictive. But anyway, when he saw Krishna, this personification of spontaneous love along with his friends in this intimate association, he thought, what are the gods talking about this guy for? He doesn't even know how to eat with the right hand. <laughs> And so forth, and so he misunderstood. So anyway, he's a very uh, moral and upright religious person, Brahma. To attain that position is, is not easy. So, how can someone in that high position become degraded? And if the idea is, this is the question, right? If every soul begins there, and so many millions and zillions and quadrillions, <laughs> infinite, Actually, there's infinite number of souls in the material world. Now, what does that mean to us? The material world is not a geographical region that has so many miles. Sometimes you may talk about it like that and so forth, but it's not that you'll go so many miles and then you'll hit the spiritual world. <laughs> if you could only get a fast enough rocket. No. It's a plane of consciousness. And we have to kind of gradually wean ourselves from linear kind of thinking, even about material life. What then to speak of spiritual life? We are given a, an explanation of the spiritual life and lila of, of Krishna, the free life of spontaneous interaction with Bhagwan, with God and so forth, in a kind of a linear way, so that we get a handle on it, because we're so accustomed to bringing things within the grip of our intellect and having an intellectual necessity to do so in order to accept it and and have a handle on it and so forth. But intellect is such a small thing, really, such an insignificant thing. But nonetheless, we humans are governed by it, hopefully, in the least. And so the spiritual people, they appeal to that. And so descriptions are given and so forth. But this Leela is not, uh, it's, it's multidimensional. And as I say, what to speak of that, the material world is multidimensional. There's the universe inside every atom. What about that? So, unlimited souls. Like, for example, what I'm talking about in terms of the Leela, sometimes it's spoken of in terms of eight divisions of the day. But someone may enter the spiritual world and just live in one division of that forever. Bhakti Hridaya Banmaraj wanted to always live in the Nishantalila of Radha and Krishna. This was his aspiration. Only there. Early morning Leela. So, it's, it's, if you just give you some idea, it's a big affair. Large. Isn't it described in a linear way? Like, you know how they say each element is ten times greater, yeah. and then there's the Viraja, and then there's the spiritual world. So, it's kind of right. described that way, isn't it? Yeah. But it's not. Well, it's to help us to get a grip on it. If there are unlimited souls in the material world, they can't fit in the limited area, right? 
So the scripture also tells us there are unlimited souls. Remember, you talked about the planets are they're kind of like a representation of the plane. You know, you look Venus, so it's yeah. it's kind of there, but it's much more than that. Yeah. You see, material world is a plane of consciousness, and what is that consciousness? It's a consciousness of limitation, in which we we see limitation where there is none. That is Maya. Do you follow me? Maya is that which is not. We see limitation where there's not. Maya means also, it means illusion. Therefore, it means that which is not, and also means to measure. So this tendency, this necessity of ours to measure, what is that? What is at the bottom of that? It's our necessity to be in control. But we are not in control. God is in control. (laughs) We're not in control. Therefore, it's illusion. So that's what material existence is. The need. Yeah, exactly. False ego, material ego, material identity. Right. Exactly. With the need to be in control, so the need to measure everything, to bring it all under and understand it. That's why you can't find God in the laboratory. That's why you can't find a soul there. Because the whole idea is that they are beyond superior to intellect. So they won't therefore appear in a controlled experiment because they're not controlled by intellect, by mind. They're transcendent to it. So the nature of being, the nature of reality is that it's infinite. When we try to measure it, when we try to measure the infinite, we're in maya. That's where we are. That's where it is. But don't we always um, exert like self-control, like even say um, process of sadhana bhakti? You know, it takes a great deal of um, self-control and self-discipline. And so, isn't if if I'm not in control? Then right, how you're not in control. You're not in control of everything. But we try to bring everything under our control. That's what the intellect is doing, is try to bring things under its control, understand it. If you understand it, you're above it. It escapes. It cannot be arrested by your intellect. When you do sadhana, spiritual practice, where is that coming from? That's coming from above. And the whole teaching in sadhana is that you're not in, a good part of it, you're not in control. So it's, it's an exercise of acknowledging dependence. That's what sadhana is. Acknowledging. And to stop all this thinking. How I will get this, how I will do that. And, so, and just hear the chanting. So it's trying to give up being controlled by the intelligence and, and accept the fact that I'm controlled. That the environment's controlled by Krishna. Everything's okay. It all works. It's all fine. You don't have to be the big doer to make it all work. You're not going to die. It doesn't happen. Your existence isn't threatened. It looks like it from our vantage point, but but it's not. Come out from that. So how can the soul, who's a, a Brahma, such a big position, become degraded in their unlimited souls and material existence? They were all Brahmas at one point. Then you start really, how am I? How am I going to make progress? I can go all the way to the position of a Brahma, and then I, and all the Brahmas are falling down and becoming insects and 
transmigration through so many lifetimes. So, we can save your friend from this um, quandary and perplexing and troublesome as it might be. Because what is meant by that, and this is what I mentioned the other day on the phone call, one of the points I made is that if you really study Prabhupada's books like he told us to, get together with others who study them like a scientist and so forth, you'll find that they take you different places in that Prabhupada didn't appear in a vacuum, but there are predecessors and he's drawing from their work and then expressing his own inspiration based on that. And so he may say something, but if you haven't gone into it further, and, and you may find somebody like this and be bewildered about that. Think, well, nah. So then that's a call, so to speak. The book is talking to you. Better sort this out. Better got to harmonize this now. You have to understand, well, it doesn't seem to make sense to you. So you, you ask a question like this. As somebody who knows the book better, or if you know, you look in another book, and there's a book, there's something mentioned about that here, and then you put it all together, and you see, oh, he said it like this in a simple way. I could see how it could lead one to believe this, but actually what's being said, the source of it, makes clear it. This is the idea. Prophet's trying to pack so much into those books. You know, after he wrote the first canto, he thought he might not be amongst us long enough to complete the work, and he wasn't. He didn't complete, he only completed the, like maybe 12, 13 chapters of the 10th canto of Srimad Bhagavatam. He never completed the 10th canto, 11th canto, 12th canto of Bhagavatam. Well, to speak of many of the other things, that he books that he said he wanted to translate and comment on and so forth. Of course, that we consider his mercy that he left something for us to do. But in what he did write, he tried to pack in, in so much and it all leads to other places in, in this big world of scripture, all of which is only an outline, kind of a map, if you will, of reality, a map. And, you know, it's, the map is one thing, right? You read the map, and it's kind of confusing, as good as it's made, and go here and there. And going there is, a, is another thing. You follow the map, but you're going there, and there's so many things you see that aren't on the map, Right? <laughs> so many things. So, all the scripture together, what to speak of Prabhupada's books, 60 books, sounds like a lot. Well, there's a lot, lot more than that, that that he was drawing from. It's the most voluminous, if you want to talk Veda, you know, Vedic literature, as he used to say, it's the most voluminous body of literature extent uh, on the planet. You know, 108 Upanishads here. That's only just like basic ones. There's over, you know, Three, four hundred Upanishads. And Vedas, so many texts there. And then the, all the commentaries on them and, and so forth. And supplementary literature and Puranas, Upa Puranas, and, and so on and so forth. Just within our main core text, like Bhagavatam, there's so many commentaries on that. Prabhupada recommends in the very beginning of his own commentary in the first candle, you should read the commentaries of Jiva Goswami, Vishwanath, Sanatana Goswami and so on and so forth. Prabhupada had a book of about, I think, ten principal commentaries on Bhagavatam that, in Sanskrit that he would read before writing his purport to each text in his own commentary. So, as I said, he didn't appear in a vacuum. So, someone can read his book and 
also make a mistake. That's why sometimes we say that the books aren't mistaken, but they're passive. And the sadhu, the saint, is active. In other words, the book can't ask you, so do you understand? Did you understand that paragraph? But I can ask you, do you understand that paragraph? You go, yes. And I can say, what? I can be active and go after you and make sure you've understood it, right? That's why Mahaprabhu made this point. Oh, there are so many different opinions about Scripture, Mahabharata says. Yudhisthira speaks. So many different opinions about Scripture. What to do? The answer, The truth, the real essence of what it's all about is hidden in the heart of a Mahajan, of a great soul. Therefore, we should follow the footsteps of great souls. So they are actually, they transcend the scriptural injunctions. It's very practical. If you get, let us say you get a, you buy something, you buy a computer, and so then there's a manual, you know, how to use it and so forth. So you can go through and you can study it. But if, if I know how to use it, if I just bought one, you know, a month ago and I know how to use it, I come in and I just, I would just do this to the, then you just discard that manual. I hate those manuals. <laughs> I'm very bad at any instructions. I just ask people. That's my tendency. Yeah, I'm really bad at it. If I go in the store, I ask, where is this? Where I don't, you don't have the signs in the grocery store. This aisle has this, this aisle has that. I ask. Guy's got a uniform, he should know. <laughs> we had a fellow who worked our construction crew at Audarya when we were building the first buildings at the monastery. And his nature was just the opposite. He said, real men never ask questions. Never ask directions. Direct, yeah, never ask directions, right. That was what it was. I said, oh, I always ask directions. So that's the easy way. Of course, you have to find someone that knows <laughs> knows the directions to ask. But Mahaprabhu made this point also when he went to Vrindavan. That is another thing. Maybe we'll talk about that tonight. So he's done well, your friend or her, to ask you, and you've done well to ask ask me. And the answer is given, as I said, in Gopal Tapani. There it's mentioned that Brahma represents the aggregate of all jiva souls, like the composite of all of all the jiva souls, before they are expanded entirely into the world, and the whole thing starts to develop, evolve into the you know present condition. He's overseeing under Vishnu the whole affair, so he's like Aja. He's like the firstborn sometimes unborn, it's said, because he's born in an extraordinary way. He's born from the umbilical cord of Narayan in the form of a lotus. So Narayan is his father and his mother. Brahma argued with Krishna about that. Are you not my father? Are you not my mother? The umbilical, umbilical cord comes from the mother. Are you not my mother? Are you not my father? How can I be your father if I if you came from? How can I have an umbilical cord? Anyway, Krishna argued with Brahma like this. This is in Brahma Vimohan Lila, when Brahma's making all of his prayers at the end. Uh, so, Brahma is the firstborn. The point is, from the navel of Vishnu Narayan, 
and he represents like Hiranyagarbha, like the, the aggregate, the composite of all Jeev souls. And from there, they're expanding according to their karma. Let us read what Gopal Talpani says. We'll go to the Shruti reference. Brahma is the purest of souls under the influence of the principle of karma, of all those under the principle of karma. And Brahma is the purest. Like I said, he gets this high position by all his good karma. As well as the embodiment of all such beings, he is thus both a jiva soul and the samasti jiva. Samasti means aggregate. The samasti jiva is the collective of all jiva souls at the dawn of each creation. Before they emerge into differentiated states, under the influence of the principle of karma. You understand the point? So from Brahma, they all come. Everyone first takes birth as a Brahma in the sense that everyone is with, with Brahma's birth, then the jivas are born in a, in a sense, they're moving from non-differentiation to differentiation from the supsupti within Vishnu. And all their karma, that's a deep sleep of Vishnu, all their karma is stored there. Just like when you go to sleep, then your physical activity, deep sleep, you don't dream, and your psychic activity stops. Do you understand? But you're existing in a, in a deep sleep. So that when the creation winds up, we go into the, into the deep sleep of Vishnu, Susupti it's called. Then that karma, which is a psychological tendency and desire and so forth, and then the actual actions carried out by the physical body of the parabdha, the manifest karma, that's all becomes dormant. And then when the whole thing starts again, Vishnu exhales and wakes up from his yoga nidra, his mystic sleep, then the material world starts to proceed. And the first thing is, is, is Brahma. And then he He's the Samastha Jiva, the aggregate of all Jivas. And this, this is the idea. So it's not that each Brahma falls down from his position, each one becomes... You might want to read this. I think I must have discussed it a little bit more, maybe in this other section that you found. Here, let me read this. Based on this verse, okay, here, Shivatsam cha swarupam cha vartate lanchanai saha. Both my form and the universal form have their identifying marks, such as the Srivatsa. Therefore, I am known to the philosophers of Brahman by the name Srivats Lanchanam. Commentary. Narayan mentioned his Srivatsa, a marking on his chest in verse 60. This mark now he's explaining it. it, consists of curling white hairs that approximate the shape of the moon and indicate his relationship with his consort. Shijiva Goswami describes it thus, the Srivatsa is said to be either the white mark in the shape of the moon on the Lord's chest, according to Gotamiya Tantra, or hairs that curl to the right, according to the Bhavarta Deepika and other sources. Based on this verse, Prabodhananda Saraswati has further identified the Srivatsa as the Miraja Jiva Swarup or the Samasti Jiva. Vairaj Jiva Swarup 
or the Samasti Jiva of the universal form of God. The Samasti Jiva is the collective status of individual souls just prior to their individual manifestations in accordance with the rule of karma. And we've also given a reference here. See Srimad Bhagavatam 2, 3, 12, Commentary of Bhaktisiddhanta Saraswati Thakur. Also, Srimad Bhagavatam 3, 20, 16, and Gopal Tapani 1, 26. You can look up all these references and write him a nice response. Well, that part, I mean, that all makes sense, but I guess... The jiva souls, one minute please, are merged in a state of deep sleep, susupti, within Mahavishnu. And when the time for the creation to manifest arises, these jivas move towards differentiation by first appearing as a collective within Brahma and then expressing their individuality in accordance with their latent karma. As mentioned earlier, it is in this sense that the Bada Jeev, the conditioned soul, first takes birth as Brahma. This Brahma, the Bairaj Purusha or Bairaj Jiva, represents the Srivats of Narayan when the universe is conceived of as Narayan's form, the Virata Rupa, universal form. In the universal form, the Srivats is the Samasti Jeev, all the Jeeves close to the heart. So, it's said to be the Lord had a Kastubhijan or something, or the souls are or something? It's also mentioned, yes. So that all, you know, that all makes sense. And, but I, I think his struggle is more, and now it's mine, I'm also thinking, you know, that here the, um, you know, all this is, all the souls are coming out from all Vishnu, and they have this latent karma that they're playing out. Mm. So they, they're all being born from Brahma, you know, ostensibly. And, but in order to get karma, one has to be in a human form, well, so you're generate. looking at, you, again, you're thinking the fall of the jiva. Well, we'll just know, I mean, how how else does one obtain any kind of karma unless, unless it's been in a human form? So it seems that there has to be a human form of life first before one can become something else. So I think that was more his question. How do you really Well, it's, that's not a, really, a, shouldn't be a bewilderment okay. that human beings can can abuse human right. life right. was readily experienced. But where does it so start? Does it what start? I guess the thing is, and it seems like it's not like the first Brahma in the first creation, and of course it's, we know that it's kind of an eternal thing, but how does, you know, how do, it seems like you have to start as a human being to get karma, to become something else. So his question is, if, if we start as human beings, there's so many more other living entities, way more than there are human beings. So how does that... That was his question. Mm-hmm. It wasn't so much the Brahma, that wasn't the issue. It was more mm-hmm. You should explain the Brahma issue. Yeah. One thing that needs to be addressed is that there is no start. Right. And that tells you right there you're thinking too much. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, that was kind of what I, I, what I probably would have answered. Karma is a nadi. It means beginningless. Karma is the principle of justice and the material world has no beginning, right? 
It's coming and going, coming and going, coming and going with no beginning. It's compared to what? The breath of Vishnu, right? The exhalation of Vishnu brings about the world. So if there's a beginning to that, that would mean there was a beginning to Vishnu, right? The whole idea, in one sense, of saying that it's his breath is to tell us that there's no beginning to that. Because if you put a beginning to the material world, then you put a beginning to God, and that God has no beginning. Again, this is all this, this is Maya. That's what material existence is. This whole tendency to want to measure it and, and make that which is infinite finite. So it's eternal backwards and forwards. Right. So, well, conditioning may not be eternal forward because it can stop. But our karma is, has no beginning, but it can come to an end. Material existence has no beginning. And what is karma? Karma is the principle of justice. In other words, how we interact with material nature is going to cause a reaction. It's like a machine. So if you input this into the machine, this is something else, something's going to come back. That's the idea. And Vishnu, God, does not interfere, for the most part, with the principle of karma, justice. Because if he did, he would be guilty of being capricious, whimsical, and disregarding just people would complain. Right? Now, sometimes he intervenes. And what is that called? Mercy. Now, in order for there to be mercy, there has to be justice, right? That you transcend. So both things exist. Lord's mercy and justice. He's impartial. Therefore, he allows the principle of karma to determine people's activities, the soul's activities in the material world. But he's merciful and that he intervenes by coming here and showing affection to the devotees. That partiality there that he shows, that's his beautiful ornament which makes him lovable and attractive and so forth. So, world has no beginning. So the principle of karma has no beginning. So there, there is no beginning. And, you know, that just doesn't fit in your mind. So it, it's telling you, you know, you're thinking about it too much. This isn't something to think about. What you have to address is the fact that it is going on and that you're involved in it. But there are consequences for action, and therefore, the varied species of life. And consequences that are a result of action are also not entirely blind, but I mean, what I mean to say is, as much as there is will involved, that's going to determine the reaction also. That's why we say, well, the animals have no... No karma. What it means is, as much as they don't have intention, there's not going to be repercussion. So, like when you say, anyone who eats beef will have to take birth for every cow, every hair on a cow's body. Yeah, that's for a Brahmin who knows that. But who doesn't know that, they're not going to get the same kind of Reaction. It's not that there will be no reaction for what you do, but that's the whole idea. The world starts to make a little more sense and become a little more friendly, and there's less 
us and them when you understand it like this. That's why, also, you can find that people who are not devotees may be nicer people than people who are devotees, officially, card-carrying devotees, can be meaner, more bigoted, racist, or whatever. And mean, they can be. It is true in any religious tradition. They can be the meanest people on earth. And then those don't believe or don't have the knowledge and so forth, they're nicer and so on. They may not have the knowledge you have, but they're being as good as they can be, given the knowledge that they do have. And you have more knowledge and you're not being as nice as you should or could be, given the knowledge that you have. And so it becomes more ugly and more unbecoming. Do you understand? And so then, then you become the greatest uh, impetus for the non-believers to continue to pursue their agnostic, you know, uh, or atheistic temperament. You have heard so many times, well, you know, so many wars in the world started by religions. Probably almost all of them. You know, if you want to look back, there were religious implications and sectarian beliefs and, you know, some kind of faith behind them. So those who have more knowledge but don't really live up to it and apply it and so forth, they become the meanest of the mean and they implicate the karmic implication, the repercussions. Then you come to something called aparad, you see. Then you have the potential for making a sin of the soul. If you don't even know what a soul is and you're not pursuing that as a sadhaka, it's pretty hard to make an aparad. You can, there can be, but as much as there's malice, as much as there's will and intention and so forth, and that's your practical experience, right? Your practical experience.